0: Welcome to the COVID-19 Journal Club, brought to you by Manchester Women Infirmary and the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, for another deep dive looking at one paper in depth, and then five rapid-fire papers. And we've got another expert faculty. So we've got the same cast as last week: myself, Simon Carley. We've got Anisa Jaffar and Charlie Reynard, We've got our two professors of medical virology, Pam Vallley and Paul Clapper. And we're really pleased to be joined by Casey Parker as well from Broom Docs, which I'm sure you will, of course, know.
1: G'day, Rick. Thanks for the invite. I'm a uh, GP from the far north of Western Australia, and I run a podcast and blog, which is all about evidence-based medicine. And we do a monthly, roughly, journal club with my friend Justin in Canada. So this is the sort of thing that we get our teeth into
0: regularly. So looking forward to it. So this week, we've got a randomized controlled trial of hydroxychloroquine which is fantastic because there's lots of hype about hydroxychloroquine. I ran a webinar with USEM this week, did a poll to find out what people were using for treatment of COVID-19 across Europe, and the majority of people said that they were using hydroxychloroquine. So, Anissa, you're going to take us through this latest evidence to see if we're right to be using hydroxychloroquine.
2: Uh, ask- pointed out really by the the authors themselves we're we're very much learning on the go during the COVID-19 pandemic and therapeutic arsenals are very very limited and the number of antivirals that are potentially going to be useful falling bit like soldiers as we move forward but there's a lot of hype remains around the hydroxychloroquine partly come about because of the in vitro activity against the COVID-19 but obviously previous experience with SARS and MERS. In terms of the effect that it's supposed to have there's queries around viral entry and viral replication but it's as yet not fully confirmed how it has that activity. So it's a very important question that's been posed by the study team and it's the first multi-centre randomised control trial that we have available to us looking at the use of hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. One quote from the paper, which does highlight the importance of this specific study and others like it. And the quote was, hydroxychloroquine was recently recommended by the American president, Donald Trump. Such a presidential endorsement stimulates an avalanche of demand for hydroxychloroquine, which buried the dark side of the drug. And it's that that's got to remember that it's not a, a drug without side effects, which is retinopathy, GI side effects and cardiac side effects. So this study was intended to look at safety and efficacy. It's a multi-centre, open-label, randomised control trial, which involved the administration of hydroxychloroquine to, well, 150 patients were in the intention to treat, and they were patients who were hospitalised with COVID-19. It was carried out at 16 government-designated COVID-19 treatment centres from three provinces in China, Hubei, Henan and Anhui provinces hydroxychloroquine was given at quite a high dose it was 1.2 grams daily for three days followed by 800 milligrams daily for two to three weeks so large dose and a reasonable length of treatment and the primary outcome they were looking at was viral clearance by day 28. There were a whole host of secondary outcomes including um, resolution of clinical signs and symptoms signs including um, reduction in fever, oxygen saturations maintaining above 94% and then Losing of the respiratory symptoms. There was an attempt to look at resolution of radiological findings, there were some issues with that as the study went on. And then they looked at lab parameters such as CRP, ESR, IL6, TNF alpha. And then as time went on, they looked more specifically at moderate and severe cases, and thinking about things like mechanical ventilation, ECMO, again oxygen use, and hospital stay. They took information at days 4, 7, 10, 14, 21 and 28. The initial sample size was powered at 80% for 360 subjects uh, with the intention of an interim analysis at 150 subjects. We can discuss that a little bit more later. Those included um, in the study had to be 18 or over. Ongoing COVID-19 infection which was confirmed by RT-PCR and they had to make an agreement not to enter any other trials. Anyone that had an allergy to hydroxychloroquine, obviously, was um, excluded. Those with severe liver and renal disease were also excluded. If they were unable to consent or fully cooperate due to cognitive impairment, they were also removed from the trial, as were pregnant and lactating patients. By and large, they were a well matched control and uh, intervention group. The overall, mean age of 46, 55% male. The severity of the group were mostly mild or moderate. The only areas of a signal which might be interesting to think about and they, they don't necessarily show up or get discussed in a great level of detail. There's just a comparison of the numbers in the mild and moderate group between the, the two groups. In the hydroxychloroquine group there appear to be more of the mild and less of the moderate but again it's difficult to look at the numbers in the raw form. And the only other area that I thought was a little bit interesting was the coexisting conditions, because there appear to be more comorbidities in the hydroxychloroquine group. Again, that's something we just have to bear in mind. We can't always take the the raw numbers um, at face value. The laboratory findings were almost identical at baseline. There was really nothing to pull the two groups apart. The cough, sputum production, shortness of breath numbers in the hydroxychloroquine group, there seemed to be more symptoms of that nature in that group compared to other. And again, that's just focusing on purely raw numbers. So the overall results were unfortunately a little bit disappointing. There was no significant difference in viral clearance at 28 days. All told, when we look at all of the paper in its glory no really significant difference in any symptoms signs and laboratory values there was a hint at some signal around crp but that's a little bit a little bit dubious there was a fairly late administration of hydroxychloroquine it was a, around 16 to 17 days on average 30 percent of the hydroxychloroquine group did suffer some adverse events mainly gi and there were a couple of patients who had to have fairly severe adverse events which were reversible
0: Really interesting. No signal to benefit whatsoever. So it goes against what we looked at with Gotray et al, where they found in a non-randomised study some proposed benefits of hydroxychloroquine. This is the largest RCT so far of hydroxychloroquine and no benefits. What do we make of that then? So maybe I'll go to Paul first to go for a virology opinion. The hydroxychloroquine was proposed to have in vitro effects, reducing the acidity of the endosome, stopping the virus from getting properly into the cell and replicating, but so far not proven to be the case. What do you you make of it, Paul? Well, we've seen this before. If you go back to influenza and amantadine treatment, that was
3: supposed to work by acting on preventing the emergence of influenza from the endosome, and it's not a very effective antiviral at all. So there may be some in vitro activity, but it's minor, I think. And the main thing that came from this was really that there's no effect on viral replication. And that's the hallmark of whether it has antiviral activity or not. It has an effect on symptoms. That that may be its anti-inflammatory effect.
1: Quite interesting when you look at those numbers and they talk about in their secondary outcomes, symptomatic improvement of patients, which is something that would be really great if it were true. But as Anissa pointed out, the patients weren't really clearly matched in their cohort groups beforehand. It seemed that the patients in the hydroxychloroquine group had worse symptoms before the trial. A lot of the outcomes that they they were on a post hoc analysis where they sort of adjusted a few things for other drugs that were involved. So I'm not too sure we can hang too much weight on that symptomatic improvement from this trial. I'm going to be skeptical of that
0: result. Absolutely, yeah. It was pleasing to see that they emphasised the primary outcome results in the abstract, which were negative, rather than hanging on to these exploratory post hoc analyses. Simon, what do you make of it from a clinical perspective? Well, from a clinical perspective,
4: I think it's right that we're skeptical that we don't necessarily believe the results, but I still think we're in an unproven area with this. This isn't a great design trial. We still, I think, need to look for further evidence. 75 patients in each group. It's quite a broad group of patients that they recruited of varying different severities. And I just don't think there's enough here at all. The fact that we've not found a signal is as unsurprising as if we had found a signal in this group, really. So I'm not sure it's taken as much further down the line. What I do think is fascinating is the fact that this trial and some of the other trials have led to large numbers of patients being treated with hydroxychloroquine. And there are people who would look at this trial and say, well, actually, nobody died of hydroxychloroquine poisoning. Therefore, we should just give it anyway. That's not science. That's the bit I'm finding quite frustrating at the moment. It reminds me of vitamin C trials around sepsis that there was a big buzz around these sort of things. And you think, well, what harm can we do? Let's give it. No, I think this is further evidence that we need to continue. And I'm going to say it, I said it last week, the recovery trial is recruiting in the UK. We've now got over 6,000 patients randomised with uh, COVID-19. And one of the arms in that is hydroxychloroquine. And we may well get an answer on that by June with several thousand patients. That's what we need here.
0: It's worth bearing in mind in the meantime, while we're waiting for that, high level evidence from big RCTs like recovery, that this isn't the first negative trial of hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. There are actually a couple of smaller trials and 64, 32 patients uh, that have also been negative. So apart from that one study by Gautrey et al, where we recognize so many limitations because of the non-randomized design um, and so many biases that would be introduced, Actually, we're not getting even any signal towards benefit with hydroxychloroquine. To broaden the discussion a little bit from hydroxychloroquine, this is obviously really disappointing because we've got a condition here with no treatment. And in the meantime, we've got to do something for these patients. We saw the negative trial of uh, lopinavir We've got dubious benefit with ventilation even. What are we going to do in the meantime while we're waiting for some evidence for these patients?
5: Do no harm, make sure we're not giving any of these experimental drugs on poor evidence, low level evidence, and that we maintain perspective on the equipoise
0: that we find ourselves in and focus on the things that we do know help, which isn't very much. I agree. Uh, I have to say my approach has become quite minimalist for these patients. We don't of anything that really works. So gentle supportive therapy with oxygen, looking after the basic things and doing that as well as we possibly can, seems to be as much as we can realistically offer at the moment. Casey?
1: You've got to remember these are open label trials and so normally when we see an open label trial you would actually expect some placebo effect to give us a you know maybe a a false benefit but we're not even seeing that in this trial which makes me a little bit worried that possibly there is a signal towards harm and it's being balanced out by that non-placebo effect. As you mentioned there's a big trial going on in the UK at the moment and it'll be excellent But you can't take any safety data out of a trial of 150 patients because we know that side effects are, you know, one in a thousand, one in 10,000 and serious side effects even rarer. So you need a big trial to prove that. So I think you can be falsely reassured by saying there's no significant harm in these small trials.
0: I think that's a really important point, Casey, because some of the reaction I've heard from this trial is that, well, they used really high doses and they didn't get a signal towards adverse effects. So at least we're not seeing that it's doing any harm. But as you just pointed out, we can't necessarily trust that to say that there is no harm with this treatment because it's a small sample. The absence of a placebo effect might be disguising harm that we were unable to measure. Fantastic, Anissa. Thanks for a brilliant presentation of that paper. Let's move on to our rapid fire round First of all, we're going to go to Charlie's paper, which is about looking at antibody seroprevalence in California.
5: This is a preprint publication, COVID-19 Antibody Seroprevalence in California. This was done by uh, the University of Stanford, and they wanted to see how many people in the community have antibodies to COVID-19, to SARS-CoV too. They used a testing kit, which is important to focus on, which I'll just talk briefly about. It's a lateral flow immunochromatography kit, which is the same sort of tech as goes into pregnancy tests, but it's not particularly well validated. And including their validation they've done in this paper, it's only been validated on just over 500 patients. To validate it here, they used a new ELISA assay from Stanford, They then cross-validated that with PCR swabs that were positive, which is a test that we know isn't perfect in and of itself, and then used negative controls from before the pandemic. And they did that because they weren't sure that the PCR swabs that were negative were actually negative. So there's a really convoluted validation process they went through to say whether or not these kits worked in the first place. They put an advert out via Facebook, which is novel and interesting, and they enrolled 3,300 patients and they went for a representative study of the geographical area. Of those 3,300 patients, they found 50 who were kit positive, 50 who had antibodies detected by this kit, for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, with an adjusted prevalence, that gave him a prevalence of between 2.5% to 4.1%. So 25 to 4.1% of Santa Clara uh, residents, by their calculations, have antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. They then did some calculations and extrapolated that out to the whole population and they came up with stats of it being between 48 to 81,000 people in early April had this antibody had been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. That's 41 to 81,000 people compared to the official testing stats of 956. What this paper to me tells me is one, the disease is spreading beyond the official stats, which we all kind of knew but two, it highlights the difficulty in doing these tests so early in the pandemic, so early in the science of the pandemic, because we just don't know how good the tests we're using are.
0: I was interested that such a a low prevalence in a way. I mean, California doesn't seem to be badly affected by this so far. I think 28,000 cases and and a population of 39 million, compared to us in the UK, where we've got, what, 130,000 cases and 67 million. They don't seem to be anywhere nearly as badly affected as the UK, for example but it seemed like a low percentage to me. Just a word of caution
3: about all the antibody tests. There are about 70, I think, in being investigated in the States and probably 200 around the world. The problem is about specificity. We have had coronaviruses circulating as common colds and occasional causes of diarrheal disease. The question is, do these tests pick up the previously circulating coronavirus and declare them? as positive. There are two problems. These tests will detect IgM antibody, which is the first antibody which arises after a virus infection. But of course, the IgM antibody is broadly cross-reactive, and it's possible that it will cross-react with other respiratory infections. The IgG, which is the long-lived antibody, is more specific, but it could be that we are seeing cross-reaction with the existing pool of antibody within the population. So the results may not be particularly good. The evaluations that have been done in this country suggest there are problems with both sensitivity of the tests and also specificity. And we don't yet have a really good sensitive and specific antibody assay. The early days of HIV infection, when that was discovered, we got antibody tests fairly quickly. It took another 12 to 15 years to get really specific antibody tests. Same with hepatitis C, when that arose, it took nearly 10 years to get really good specific antibody tests. So it may take us a while to get good combination of tests that will give us specificity and give us the true prevalence of the population. It's gonna take some work, I think, and it's a, a global effort now to try and get specific antibody tests.
0: They will come, but it's going to take a little while. So the next paper, so Pam, you're going to take us through this one, a virology paper looking at virological assessment of hospitalised patients with COVID-19.
6: So this is a a paper from a German lab, Christian Drosten's lab in Munich. And I think there was some input from a lab in Cambridge as well. It presents a a very detailed virological assessment of only nine patients. None of them were elderly. Three have had comorbidities, including one with COPD. And they all had relatively mild disease, but they were all hospitalised and they all recovered. It's a, a different look at the, you know, some, of, some of the other studies that have been done. So they were all diagnosed by reverse transcriptase PCR and from an, a nose or a throat swab. And incidentally, they found no difference in sensitivity between the nose and the throat swab. They present very good evidence that this virus, SARS-CoV-2, in contrast to SARS, is able to actively replicate in the upper respiratory tract. They've done some some nice work looking at subgenomic RNA, uh, which is an indicator of replicating virus. That's important because we know that the Respiratory tract has got low levels of the ACE2 receptor compared to the lower respiratory tract, and you know SARS certainly was a, a lower respiratory tract disease. This seems to be both upper respiratory tract and in some cases uh, into the lower respiratory tract as well. And they propose that the reason that SARS2 cannot replicate in the upper respiratory tract is that it's got a, a polybasic furin-type cleavage site inserted into the the S1-S2 junction in this COV2 spike protein, and that's not present in in SARS and that type of insertion into the protein has been shown to lead to a a bit of an increase in fusion activity of the virus so that allows the virus to sort of get entry into the cell more easily Uh, and it might explain why COVID 2 can replicate in the upper respiratory tract whereas sars couldn't probably explains why so many people are reporting a loss of taste and smell with this disease they um, found that active viral replication also occurs in the gut but Interestingly, they couldn't detect any live virus in stool, and I've read a few other papers that say that as well. So possibly the virus is, is replicating in the gut but being destroyed in the you know stomach environment, in the acid. We need more studies on that, really. There was also no virus isolated from the urine or from serum. They also looked for the presence of antibody, IgG and IgM, and they found that by day seven, after the onset of symptoms half of the patients, 50% of the patients had sera converted, so they had antibody present. And in fact all nine of the patients had sera converted by day 14. And they all had a detectable title of neutralizing antibody. But There was no correlation between the titer and the clinical course. So, you know, patients with slightly more severe disease didn't seem to have more antibody or or less antibody. You know, as Paul mentioned earlier, they also found that the antibody was cross-reacting against endemic circulating coronaviruses um, in several of the patients. They also tested the patients for lots of other circulating viruses, respiratory viruses, uh, and interestingly didn't find any other co-infections in these nine patients, which is interesting really important is that the presence of antibody was not associated with an end to the viral load in sputum so there was no sort of clear correlation between antibody appearing and virus going away in sputum instead there seemed to be a slow and a steady decline in sputum you know one of the patients you could still detect virus 28 days after the onset of symptoms important take-home message from this is that ongoing replication in sputum could be problematic for infection control and of the early release of patients who appear well. And they state that based on the present findings in this paper, early discharge with um, ensuring home isolation should be chosen for patients who are beyond day 10 of symptoms with less than 100,000 viral RNA copies per ml of sputum, both of those criteria, then there's little residual risk of infectivity from the patient.
0: Wow, some really interesting insights from known patients there. Fantastic. Simon, you want to come in?
4: Oh, well, it's just the implications of this, I think, for those of us who work in hospitals. We're very, very worried at the moment about nosocomial um, infections between staff members. And of course, we're also uh, a very high risk of getting the, the disease. And I'm now working with people who've been COVID positive. This seems to give a message that just stay away for seven days or stay away for 14 days is probably a bit risky and that people will be coming back infective. Is that that right, Paul and Pam? The nice thing about this
3: study is it's one of the few where they've actually cultured the virus, and culture of virus is really the only way we can look at infectivity. And what they were saying was that this seven-day period, you're still shedding virus so you can pick up viral RNA, but that in terms of infectivity, once you got to seven days... The infectivity drops off dramatically, and therefore your risk of infection drops dramatically. So the seven-day advice that we've been that's been given out is probably correct for mild disease. That's the thing to emphasise. This is looking at mild infections. So the normal ones, the sort of extra hospital infections, that's good advice. I think. I don't think we yet got the study in severely ill patients to actually tell us what's happening with these patients that you have in
6: an intensive care unit. I think that, that all of that is absolutely right. I think this is really the first sort of proper evidence that we've had yeah. that the appearance of antibody doesn't correlate with
0: disappearance of virus. Should we be measuring viral load in people before we end self-isolation? What they're saying in this paper is that viral load by itself doesn't
3: work In the mild cases, what we need is the data where they've done the virus isolation with viral load studies in hospitalised patients. Now, I'm sure that data is coming from Germany, but we haven't yet got, got our hands on it. Most of the studies that came from China were about viral load, about RNA detection, rather than actually looking at the infectivity in relation to the viral load.
0: I was also interested to see about the uh, excretion in faeces. It's not the only study to have identified that, and that there's actually some shedding in faeces for quite some time after infection. So yeah. it emphasises the potential for faecal oral route as a mode of transmission. That would fit with, with most
3: coronaviruses. that You do get faecal oral transmission of it. But with, in this study, they're suggesting that actually the infectivity, there is no infectivity in the faecal samples, that it's mainly spread by oral transmission. And that's unusual. And the way they've done that is is with culture and also looking for RNA transcripts. It suggests there is some replication in the gut, but it's not actually resulting in infectious virus appearing in the stool specimens.
0: It's a really interesting study of nine patients. That's brilliant. That's fascinating. Thanks so much, because you've really helped us to make sense of that. So the next paper that we're going to move on to, is uh, going to be presented by Anissa. So Anissa, you may know, has a, an interest in global health. That's what she's done a, a PhD around. And uh, Anissa, you, this is not published in a journal. You thought of um, outside the box, really, to find this really nice piece published by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine on the, the guidance that we might follow in camps and camp-like settings.
2: Yes, it's a bit of a shift, really, from sort of the hard science, but um, it's in many ways, no less useful. So a bit of a practical shift. So it takes a bit of a different perspective. And, and the reason I, I wanted to bring this particular paper, number one, sort of highlight the, the sort of wider global implications and, and a slightly different setting than obviously our relatively high income and higher resource scenario. But there are some lessons from within the sort of humanitarian response and low resource settings which are potentially useful to sort of take on in our own settings. Um, and specifically um, around this is the area of sort of being responsive to need and being a bit horizontal in our approach to planning. And this will hopefully come out as I to brief you on on this document, so I think anyone who's got a bit of an interest in—I mean, we call it global health, but we we mentioned this previously. This whole thing is global. The papers that we're discussing are not from the UK; they're, they're global. We're thinking here specifically about low-middle-income countries, low-resource settings, and how that potentially differs from what we're used to. So this paper looks at the general principles of shielding for refugees and um, internally displaced persons in camp-like settings. And it talks about who should be shielded, how to create shielding zones in different settings. So this is a, a very practical and difficult thing to achieve. It also focuses a little bit on community engagement in this process, and that's something that we perhaps ought to think a little bit about, even in, in the UK setting, if we look at the government approach, which has been a fairly command and control vertical approach to the way that we've we've managed isolation because we have the privilege of having a a community setup that allows for that as we all know that in terms of adherence there have been a few um, anomalous approaches it just goes to the setup of the shielding zones how you manage the symptomatic residents of those zones and then how you actually manage distribution of commodities and provide healthcare. it's A document that's intended, um, and this is where it differs a little bit, I suppose, from some of the academic work that we we, we spend our time focusing upon. It's intended for the displaced community itself, as well as the humanitarian actors and those involved in coordination and management. So it's a very open document, as I say, very practical. So why are camp-like settings so special? And, And lots of it goes without saying they are potentially overcrowded. They have often poor access to safe water and sanitation and often poor access to health services and obviously the health status of those living in those settings based on um, obviously previous scenario of actually getting there in the first place is likely to be problematic. So you've got a bit of a perfect storm for spreading and also for putting those at highest risk, increasing the chance of them being exposed to, to the virus. And the other issue you have in in that sort of scenario is this mass stay-at-home order isn't necessarily going to work and the the social distancing, self-isolation and quarantine that that we would be experiencing in the UK particularly are highly likely to be unfeasible and the actual impact on livelihoods of that approach, I mean obviously we're going to see it in the UK, we are seeing it in the UK but it will be much more direct, make it immediately unfeasible um, in in certain of these camp-like settings you would require such high compliance of all of those measures that I've just mentioned to lower transmission that would become impossible and, and actually almost pointless to, to roll out. The focus of this document is about shielding and suggesting that is much more efficacious and it discusses around how you, you create green zones at a household level, a neighbourhood level and a camp level and it, this is interesting from camp-like settings but also thinking about what's going on in our own communities and whether there's anything that we could draw on in the UK. At the moment obviously we've taken a specific lockdown approach but as we come out of lockdown whether there are models from this setting that you could apply to kind of bring us out in a staged way. The attempt of this document is to just avoid those at highest risk coming into contact with the virus as much as as possible, whether that's via interaction with other people, but also with contaminated food, water and other fomites. The two key aspects to it are very much community acceptance and involvement, good communication, good information and non-coerciveness. Now, the interesting part about that is if we think about how certain aspects of the pandemic have been managed, we haven't always had a scenario of, of fantastic communication and the best information and perhaps lack of coerciveness so we, it, it, we are in a different scenario in the UK that is sure this community acceptance and involvement is being really really key to making these measures successful and the other aspect is sufficient support to the shielded residents and caregivers so it's fine shielding people but there needs to be a focus on being able to provide what they need in order for, again for that to be successful. The final bit I want to just draw your attention to is the decision about which household members meet the inclusion criteria for shielding who should be allocated The green zone and and how all of this is set up again in an ideal setting is pushed out to the community, so it's not done in a top down approach, it's done in discussion. So, again, it's much more likely to be accepted. There are very specific considerations, and obviously, if you have children in camp like settings, there needs to be some accompaniment by at least a single caregiver. Individuals with tuberculosis have to be considered for isolation separately, obviously, they're at high risk of COVID potentially. But also there is high risk of spreading tuberculosis itself, so that's a specific consideration. And then there's a lot of mention around mental health considerations and those who've undergone sexual physical abuse and how you actually manage that shielding. And one line that they do put in there is that there's no mandatory green zoning. If somebody opts to not remain in the green zone, has taken the informed decision to be exposed, that that is something that is has to be accepted. The lessons to learn, I think, from this document, the question is to how horizontal are our own approaches, and not necessarily from a society level, but even from a hospital level, because we seem to flip very much into the major incident commander control vertical top-down approach. And there may be something to learn here from the humanitarian sector about a more horizontal approach, even to hospital management, as much as we think about community management and this community engagement is potentially going to be more important than, than we think it would be in our sort of high income settings. And There is a UK group of healthcare workers with a mix of NHS and humanitarian experience who are trying to marry up these connections and if anyone's interested take a look there at the work they've been doing because it is really interesting and does pull this together a little
0: bit. Not our typical journal article to appraise, but loads of really interesting points about how we can shelter at risk individuals in these settings, maybe apply it to our own settings. As, as we progress with this, there may be ideas within it that we can apply to perhaps care homes and the shielding of people within that high risk environment. Anissa, thanks a lot for that. It's a really interesting paper to present. Let's move on to the next paper, which is, oh, I'm going to take this one. This is about myocarditis. So of my interest in, uh, in the heart, I'll tell you a little bit about this. It's a case report of, of a 63-year-old patient presented with apparent fulminant myocarditis. So there was some discussion about this and some insights into it. So this patient presented with typical symptoms of COVID, a high fever, a cough, and they also had some exertional chest tightness. The chest x-ray and some of the CT images show classical COVID pneumonia. They also noticed some cardiac abnormalities. The ECG, which they said in the report actually didn't show any ST elevation. i probably disagree with them on this one. <laughs> they measured a cardiac troponin and it was massive. I think they reported the wrong units because it, it would have been 1.5 billion Uh, nanograms per but I think it's probably a little lower magnitude than that but still a very high troponin and the patient had an ejection fraction of 32% on their echo so they presented this as the first case of fulminant myocarditis that occurred in China. It would be nice to have some MR data and it would have been nice I think to know what the coronary anatomy looked like because we do know that patients with these viral infections can actually get high incidence of ACS and STEMI And I just wonder what was going on in the coronary arteries of that patient, given those EDG findings and the troponin. So it might have been nice to explore that and see if actually this was coronary artery disease and a myocardial infarction rather than myocarditis. But the myocarditis does seem to be a real thing. This paper from another group in China, Shown that if you have cardiac injury, as detected by a high troponin level, when you have a COVID-19 infection, then your prognosis is much worse than patients who have a normal troponin. Of course, it's going to be a continuum. The higher you go, the worse your prognosis. So it's telling us something important. And you may say that in this study, well, they're likely to be sicker if they've got a a high troponin. They're likely to be older. They're likely to have more comorbidities. It may just be a sign of their underlying condition. Well, the authors did attempt did adjust for that, uh, and they still found independent predictive value of troponin. So it does seem to be telling you something. And this wasn't the only case report of myocarditis in the literature. There have been others as well, where there are classical MR findings of myocarditis. Uh, I'd say that we need to look out for it when you've got a patient who's hypotensive and shocked, With COVID, bear in mind that it might be myocarditis because that might not be fluid responsive. And in fact, giving them fluid might be the the wrong thing to do. They may need inotropes. So any thoughts about that, Simon? I don't know if you've got any thoughts about the clinical perspective of myocarditis. How does this affect your practice in the emergency department, knowing about this possibility and what you're going to do differently?
4: Not a huge amount of things differently at this stage, because I mean, what we are doing now is we're measuring troponin on all the patients who come in. So all the patients get admitted, get a standard panel. And I think we should be doing that to get a baseline and to see where things are going. I think your comment about fluid is a tricky one, because we do know from the uk experience it seems that these patients are coming in pretty dehydrated so lots of people are saying they've lost five kilos in a week with the covid done the week before they come to the ed and of course that's water there's been a lot of thoughts locally that we need to try and catch up and make people uvolemic so don't be afraid to give fluid in those initial few hours and certainly within the first day i think doing echo on these patients is potentially useful as well the paper does talk about the echo changes i think casey will probably be a better guide on that so i I don't Know what you, Casey, you think about um, doing ECHOs on these patients when they turn up in the ED?
1: Doing an early ECHO can certainly give you some very useful information. It's a bit limited by the skill level in your department and availability, but it's a very non-invasive test. And in terms of the infection control, it's actually pretty easy to do. So I think ECHO is probably a good bang for your buck in this current epidemic. And if you see something that looks more like a heart attack, then as Rick said, maybe we do need to do that. It it may make a big difference to that individual patient and certainly save a lot of resources potentially if they are in fact having a STEMI Uh, You don't want to put them into isolation and leave them on the ward for a few days.
4: There's a big risk at the moment that we are missing myocardial disease in general. So I think um, getting some imaging early. So we're seeing late presenting um, MIs and also people presenting with ACS who just happen to have COVID at the same time, as opposed to COVID being their major problem. So uh, again, keeping that sort of clinical scepticism is important. Measuring them and measuring the troponin is quite important in all the patients who get admitted. I think most places are doing that, but I'd be interested to hear if other centres are doing
0: the question is, what does it actually do to change your practice? What are you going to do based on that troponin, knowing that it's elevated? At the moment, it's just good, I think, to know about that information, to add it into your overall judgment. But uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get some evidence as we go forward. Casey, okay, so you're going to present a really interesting paper on chest CT. So playing to your interest in imaging.
1: This is a paper out of Rome that was published in Radiology just recently into CT chest features of COVID-19. So this was a prospective cohort trial where they took 158 consecutive Executive patients who presented to their emergency department with suspected COVID infections, patients with fever, respiratory symptoms, dyspnea, or patients who had had known contacts of COVID. They enrolled patients over two weeks. Interestingly, they excluded patients that were going to have imaging for other reasons, such as a CTPA for a PE or a dissection. I've not seen many COVID patients live, but I imagine it's quite difficult to pick the difference between a PE and someone with COVID clinically. All of the patients then went on to get a 128 slice CT of their chest and this was reported by two radiologists that had interest in thoracic imaging. So they weren't just ED docs glancing at the screen and they also went on to have the gold standard test and this is something we can come back to because all of these diagnostic studies do rely on a gold standard and it's really very unclear in this epidemic what the gold standard actually is. So in this trial, the gold standard was two separate sets of swabs of the nose and oral pharynx 24 hours apart so they ended up getting two swabs 24 hours apart and if both of them were negative they were declared to be a negative patient or if one of them was positive they were said to be a true positive they also excluded two patients from this trial because they had severe movement artifact on their chest ct and I can imagine that these patients are particularly difficult to image if someone's breathing away at 30 or 40 breaths a minute, it can be quite difficult to get a, a good CT picture. The long and the short though, is that when they put all the patients in and they tested them with the PCR technology, as well as the CT, what they found was a sensitivity for CT of 97%, which is really quite impressive. But of course, as we all know, whenever you have a high sensitivity, that comes at a cost of specificity. So the specificity was only 56% in this trial. Now, I'm a big fan of likelihood ratios, as I know Simon is as well. And um, if you convert that to a likelihood ratio, what that says is that this is a bit like a D-dimer in that it's got a very weakly positive likelihood ratio of about 2.2, but quite a good negative likelihood ratio of 0.05. So it's a good test for ruling out disease. If you've got a plumb normal CT, you probably don't have COVID is what this is saying. Of course, likelihood ratios are quite a good way of looking at this because all over the world we're seeing remarkably different prevalences, say, between the UK or the USA versus what's happening in Australia or New Zealand at the moment. And so it's really important to be able to interpret these tests in the light of what the community prevalence of the disease is. A CT of your chest in New Zealand means something very different to a CT of your chest in New York at the moment because you're going to see a lot of false positives in New Zealand compared to New York. Of the imaging that was done, of the true positives, there was a very typical pattern that they saw. So 100% of the true positives had what they called ground glass opacity. And it was usually in more than two lobes. In fact, the more lobes of your lungs that were involved, the much more likely it is that you were going to be a true positive for COVID. And if it was bilateral, and particularly posterior ground glass were more likely. The other really key thing that I picked up from this was that there was some signs of showing enlarged large subsegmental pulmonary vessels, so greater than three millimetres was the cutoff. And this is a really interesting finding because this is not something that we see with a lot of other chronic lung disease, which could cause false positives on a study such as this. And so it may be that that's a very specific sign for the COVID disease. I don't really understand why it would happen. There's a lot of ideas around microthrombi and other things going on with pulmonary hypertension in these patients but it's quite an interesting finding and has been seen in a couple of other imaging trials as well. So it may be that that is something that we can use to differentiate this from other lung disease. The very interesting thing was that the CT changes, there was quite a lot of them, they didn't seem to differentiate between the severe and the less severe. So even the patients that were sent home and treated as outpatients were just as likely to have these different CT changes. So as we always say, the better a test gets, the smarter the doctor looking at it has to be. Because if you've got a great test that's very sensitive, you, you do need to have a, a sensible doctor looking at it because you'll make a lot of random decisions if you just base it off the imaging alone. So look at the patient as well, I guess, is what that tells me. Yeah,
4: so, Casey, the, the gold standard in this was the um, PCR test, wasn't it?
1: Yes, that's right. So two, two batches of PCR,
4: 24 hours apart. We do know the PCR test is not perfect. So is there a possibility here that we're, we're testing what might actually be a superior test against an inferior gold standard? And it's always going to be tricky if potentially one test that you're performing against an imperfect gold standard may actually have better performance in some respects? Do you think that's a possibility here?
1: That is really very possible, I think, in this because the gold standard is is really difficult with this new and evolving disease. To be honest, I I don't think that two PCRs are a great gold standard. They were sort of 80% sensitive for this disease. Then that would be worse than the CT, potentially. So I really don't know. And I think bigger trials with more data which have hard clinical outcomes, so final diagnosis or autopsy results, for example, which can really give us a much more discreet idea as to what the actual gold standard should be. You've got an upper respiratory
3: tract infection, so you swap the throat and it's positive. As it descends into the lung, the amount of virus in the throat might be lower, and that would explain why some of these are PCR negative. What you really need is sampling from the lung, which is, of course, more difficult. The
1: problem with the bronchialveolar lavage is that you're going to get spectrum bias then because you're really only going to be looking at the, the ICU patients, the really sick ones, because... The well patients aren't going to put their hand up
3: for a scope. Yeah. I don't think. What well, what I would like to see is is the studies from patients who are on ventilators looking at virus in the ventilator fluid because that's that's really seeing what's coming out of the lungs and that would be a really good one to judge the CT against.
4: Well the other interesting thing, as you say, Casey, was about the vascular dilatation because ordinarily we don't see that. Um, but it could be one of the mechanisms for why we, ca- we see such a dramatic VQ mismatch in this group of patients. And then perhaps why proning seems to have such a, a, a radical and rapid effect in improving hypoxia in this group. And maybe um, a specific thing for the diagnosis, but also actually clinically, I think that might actually be quite important. It certainly seem to be more
1: of a posterior phenomenon. So yeah, if that may be why proning
0: works. Charlie, you want to say a couple of things. First of all, uh, to tell us about the Arcan top fives and how we submit and also about the Kira study. Uh,
5: as always, if you've seen an interesting paper, please share it with us. We've got a Google form, so you really fantastic to have people from far and wide submitting papers. If you put a little paragraph in it, then it will be considered for inclusion and we're looking to include as many people as possible. So please put something in there. The next announcement is regarding the Sierra study, for which the CIA is Dr. Tom Roberts, who's the turn fellow. It's the COVID-19 Emergency Response Assessment. And more than 6,000 emergency medicine clinicians, anesthetists and intensivists applied to the first survey, but it was one of three. The first one was put out before the pandemic and the second one is to be put out on or just after the peak and the Sierra study group believe that we are on or just after the peak at the moment. And so in the next hour or so, all of those people who applied to the first survey will be getting an email for the second survey and it would be absolutely fantastic and imperative for the study if everyone could please fill in that second survey and help us find out how this pandemic has been affecting frontline workers and their mental health.
0: Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Charlie. We'll share this... Again, via the St.
4: Emlins blog. Just on the St. Timeline's blog, we are going to put the stuff up on there. There's been some stuff on Twitter whilst we've been going on about the confusion about whether the Rchem CPD bulletin is the same as this. They are slightly different, partly because we've got two um, amazing virologists that we can get onto this journal club who can explain the papers in a much better way when it gets a bit technical. So there is a little bit of variance in that, but we'll put all of the data together from both so people can see all of the references, regardless of how they come to you via this or via the CPD bulletin.
0: And thanks to everybody for joining us. We'll be back same time next week on Tuesday, eleven o'clock British summer time. Take care, everybody.